I think this attitude of being a satisficer, it doesn't mean that you're just kind of settling for something that's okay. It means that it meets all of your very high standards versus the maximizer who's just going to keep saying, yeah, I like this person. I had a good time, but let me just see who else is out there. And you keep thinking that you're going to find something slightly better in this area or that area. This person is funnier. This person is taller. This person is, you know, whatever they are. And it's actually not going to make you happier. It's going to make you miserable. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. It is Valentine's Day week, the week you've been waiting for all year. And to honor this most sacred of holidays, I'm bringing you a conversation with Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a best-selling author and a psychotherapist. And we're going to talk about how to find love, if you're into that kind of thing. But first, a couple of announcements. You can find me in Austin very soon, February 29th, talking about writing and stuff, Uh, talking about a couple of my books, whatever people want to talk about at Moon Tower Verses. You can go to moontowerminion.org and find out about that. We're also doing an unspeakeasy retreat that weekend in Austin, March 2nd and 3rd, with guest speakers Sarah Heppola and the comedian Ariel Isaac Norman. Sarah is, of course, a writer who's been on this podcast many times. To find out if there's any availability uh, left, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com. We have several retreats coming up, as you know, including Seattle, May 18th and 19th with guest speaker Katie Herzog. So uh, get in on that. All right. Lori Gottlieb was here a few years ago talking about her very well-known best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which came out in 2019. She also writes the Atlantic Magazine's Dear Therapist column. She co-hosts a podcast called Dear Therapists with Guy Winch. In 2010, she published another best-selling book, Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. That book was really prescient in that it addressed many of the things that have been coming up in the uh, social media ether over the last few years, especially in the kind of uh, red pill manosphere world that I keep noticing for some reason. So I'm talking about the way people are sort of revisiting the sexual revolution, talking about whether or not that was an entirely good thing. People are talking about fertility, when is the best time to marry, whether women and men have been sold a, quote, bill of goods about what makes people happy in life. I'll say a couple of things. First, Lori took a lot of flack for using the word settling in her book title. And in fact, that word was just sort of thrust upon her by the marketing powers that be. She doesn't encourage anyone to settle. She also, it turns out, does not follow the red-pilled Manosphere bros on Twitter the way I seem to. Actually, I don't follow them, but they're constantly in my timeline. But she does have a lot to say about the messages that are coming from social scientists, messages about how long-term partnership or marriage makes us happier and healthier, makes society stronger. Her response to that is, well, duh, but how are you supposed to find someone when our social systems are so dysfunctional? Her own story involves becoming a mother on her own in her 30s, 
Her son, Zach, who she references a few times in this interview, is a budding Gen Z thought leader in his own right. And this conversation is great. It covers a lot. We talk about why it's harder than ever to date, to find a partner, maybe even harder to connect with your partner once you're in a relationship. If you're not yet a paying subscriber to this podcast, and if you're hearing my voice right now, you are not, you will hear about the first 45 minutes. There's about another 45 minutes after that in which we cover things like age gaps in relationships, why Lori thinks widowed people make the best dating partners, at least among people dating in middle age, why Lori thinks you should hire a matchmaker, if you're dating anyway, not if you're married. So to go to hear that, go to megandom.substack.com and become a paying subscriber. Otherwise, here is the first half of my conversation with Lori Gottlieb. Lori, welcome back to The Unspeakable. Well, thanks for having me back. You were here a few years ago and we had a great conversation about your book. Maybe you should talk to someone. I have been thinking about you a lot over the last several months because, um, as I mentioned to you, there's kind of this conversation emerging online. I guess there's nothing other, there's no place other than online. So it's not necessary to say that uh, about this kind of like, new trad movement. And I'm seeing a lot of like guys sort of talking very sanctimoniously about partnering up, telling guys to wife up. And it's just like this entire ecosystem of ideas. And I just thought you were the perfect person to talk with about it because I know you've thought about this stuff a lot. And I have. see patients and et cetera. So let's just start here. Do you notice this also? I guess I'm not paying so much attention to that. So I'm not seeing that. What I see is when people come into my practice and a lot of people are talking about how much they would like to find a partner and what the difficulties are today. And, you know, people can say, well, it's always been, you know, the kind of thing people talk about, you know, how do you meet the right person? And that's been going on forever. But I think that what's going on in the culture right now makes it really, really challenging. And at the same time, there is this movement where what I'm seeing less is sort of like the trad movement and I'm seeing more, it's sort of like social science where, you know, all these studies are coming out and you see them in the paper every day, as you would say, online, <laughs> which is mm-hmm, very good. Yeah. Um, but you see them, they're trending <laughs> and, and they're all about, you know, why marriage is so good for you and why, you know, and, and what happens to you if you don't get married. And I, and I think that those, I don't think those are really helpful because the people who want to be with a partner know why they want to be with a partner and they know why that would be something that would maybe improve their lives in a certain way. And so we don't need these studies to come out all the time to tell us what we already know. I think what it does is it almost feels like you're saying it's your fault that you haven't found a partner or or you don't want to find a partner or you're too picky or you're not trying hard enough. And that's just not the case. So sometimes I think that some of those studies or at least some of the discourse is aimed at like very young people, like especially younger men, like with the assumption that they don't want to settle down, they don't want to commit and they are the problem. And in the meantime, they're dying deaths of despair because they won't find a partner. 
but you're saying that you don't think that's the audience necessarily. I don't, I don't know who the audience is for that. I know that these social science studies are, I hear from women all the time that they are very, very tired of the tone of the articles about them. So they don't take issue with the studies. The studies show what they show, but it's sort of like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Because we're doing everything we can to find a partner, but it's like there's low inventory out there in terms of what they want. And it's not that they their expectations are out of line or unreasonable. It's that there are so many things that go into finding a partner. And, you know, some sociologists will say, well, it's about economics and it's about who's college educated and those kinds of things, which maybe. But it's also about, are you going to connect emotionally? Is this person emotionally mature? Do you have the same values? Do you enjoy each other? You know, the, the things that make for someone you want to be with every day. And so you can't just put two people together and say, well, these people are college educated or these people have this background in common. Right. So when did things start to change? I mean, you know, somebody could say, oh, it was it was ever thus. And obviously you wrote a whole book about this that came out more than a decade ago now. What have you noticed that's different these days? I think that the gap between what people are looking for and who is available has widened. So I think that people tend to be single longer, which is fine. But I think what happens is that, and this is going to be a generalization, and I'm talking here right now about heterosexual couples, that men who stay single longer tend to get more and more unrealistic ideas about who they should be with. So as they get older, their standards tend to go up and in an unrealistic way that don't really match who they are or what they have to offer. And what I mean by that is I'm not necessarily just talking about sort of physical attractiveness or success, but I'm talking about emotional stability, emotional maturity, compassion, being a good partner, being someone who wants a more equal type of marriage, which I think many women want today. So how participatory are you going to be in the, the domesticity part of, of the arrangement? It's, so so they, they get less and less inclined to participate in that. And I think that women are very clear as they get older about what they want. So there's this big mismatch between sort of who's available in your age range. Is there like a single thing that you might point to? I don't know that there's a single thing. I will say that there's an illusion that there are, I think for men, there's an illusion that there are so many people out there. And I think that that has to do a lot with the dating apps because that tends to be the way that most people meet nowadays, just because we don't tend to be out and about in the same way, especially as you get older and you know, in your 20s, there might be so many more social events where you're going to come across single people. And then as you move into your 30s, a lot of people are married, you're meeting people at work, and a lot of people at work are married, or maybe you don't want to date someone from work. Social events tend to be, again, a lot of the people are coupled up. 
And you just don't organically meet people in the same way. So many people use apps because they can be very effective in terms of finding other single people that you might want to meet. But the downside is that you have this idea, you go on a date with somebody. And I hear this from, you know, male therapy clients. You they they go on a date with somebody and they're like, yeah, I had a really good time. And um, yeah, I was attracted to her, but I'm also going on a date with this person and this person. And it's like, they don't really say, well, let me just slow down and let me go on a few more dates with this person that I enjoyed. And so they're kind of juggling a lot of different people and they're kind of maximizing, you know, it's not like, it's not like, wow, this is a really interesting person. Let me get to know this person. It's like, oh, let me go see what these other people are like too. And it's really hard to form relationships just to even launch a relationship when you're not focused on one person. So what we always hear about the apps is that like men swipe on 90% of women or something and women swipe on 10% of men. Do you know anything about like the numbers there? Yeah, it's interesting. One one woman in therapy said to me, she said, you know, I always think really hard about whether I'm going to swipe on this person or not. And and I said, it's not like you have to decide if you're going to marry them when you swipe, <laughs> right? But I think that's what we think. We think like, could I be in a relationship with this person? And then we will swipe. And men are like, oh, am I attracted to her? Yeah, swipe. Right. No, it's a it's a numbers game. Right, but I, think, but, I think the, but, but I think the but I think the 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 criterion is different. So for a woman, it's like, is this someone that I might want to be in a relationship with? Let me think about. It. Let me really read their profile. Let me really read what they wrote. Let me really look at this more carefully. And men are kind of like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, so how broken do you think we are at this moment as a society in terms of mating and dating and partnering and all of that? I think it's really challenging. And I think part of, you know, when we talk about what are some of the things that make it challenging, um, besides the dating apps, I think texting is a problem that a lot of people get stuck in this. They just text and text and text and text, and they're not spending time together. And so people can be texting either with multiple people or with one person, but they're not really getting to, you know, sit with the other person face to face and and be in their space. And so, you know, it, it's almost like, it's almost like the texting goes on for so long. And it's, it's not the same as those, you know, in the, in the pre iPhone days where you would have these long conversations in between dates. That's really different from, you know, let me text you a picture of this <sighs> food that I'm eating, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the people haven't even met. Right. That's what I find amazing. Yes. And they, they text for so long. And I've, I've always said to people, schedule a time to meet for coffee. Coffee's easy. You can get out of it, you know, as soon as you want to get out of it, spend your 30 minutes or whatever. But, you know, they'll text for so long. And this isn't, you, you don't need to do that, that level of kind of due diligence. Just, you know, is this a person that you think you might want to spend 30 minutes with and go spend 30 minutes with them? You're going to learn so much more in those 30 minutes than you will from two weeks of texting. I know. I know. I mean, what what little uh, dating app dating I have done, it always seemed to me the logical thing that you should just meet as quickly as possible. Yes. And I've, I've been surprised uh, at 
people not seeing it that way? Well, people say, I don't want to waste time by meeting them. And I'm saying you're wasting so much time (laughs) and you get invested in that person because you've been texting them. And then you come up with all kinds of fantasies about who they are based on the text. And it might not match who they are when you meet in person. So you're saving so much time by just meeting them. I know. Well, it's like people get into a parasocial relationship with a person before they meet them. Like yes. they're 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 Googling them or they're looking at their Instagram. So they've created an entire persona around the person. So how much of this is is generational? So like you and I are <laughs> old, you know, we're, we're middle-aged. We, we're middle-aged. <laughs> I, I'm gonna live to 108. So yes. I don't know what kind of, you know, what what the ages are of your therapy clients. I would be interested to hear, but are you finding like a significantly different just sensibility around mating and partnership among people in their 20s, say, or early 30s, as opposed to, you know, Gen Xers and such? Yeah, I definitely am. I think that because there's, they grew up sort of in this digital world, that's the norm for them. And a lot of them don't have a lot of experience with face-to-face relationships anyway. And in terms of dating that, you know, it's like groups or, or it's hookups, but they don't have actual, like we are in a relationship experience. They don't have a lot of it. They don't have as much as, as we had at, at those early ages. So for them, you know, it's kind of the norm for them to have these, as you call them, sort of parasocial relationships. And, and even things like Snapchat, you know, where they just literally take pictures of themselves all day and send them to the other person. And I'm not talking about sexting. They're just, you know, like, here's a selfie. And there, there's no kind of, who are you? Who am I? Who are we to each other? It's like, here's a monologue coming from me and here's a monologue coming from me, but there's no, there's no relational aspect to it. And I think that in our generation, there was that expectation of, you know, the excitement of getting to know someone, the excitement of those long conversations and, you know, discovery. And I think people in younger generations tend to move so quickly, whether, you know, there's one thing they don't like about a person, they move on really early on without really saying like, well, what does that mean that that person said that? Or what does that mean that that person likes this? Again, that, that, so it's, it's the pace of it. It's the, it's the not really sort of, I don't want to say committing, but you sort of have to, if you're interested in someone commit to getting to know them, even if that means four dates, right? You know, if you're interested in, on each of those dates. And so I think people will write people off very quickly. I think that people are really frustrated. Like they'll say, I'm really frustrated with this, but they do the same exact things. I think also ghosting is just the norm. It's not even unusual if people, if someone thinks like, okay, we've been on several dates, but I'm not interested in going out with this person again. They don't say that to the person, they just ghost them. And that's just the norm. And I, and, and I think that that's so, you know, for, for someone in our age group, that would be like, what is wrong with this person? I like, know, did and, they die? I'm right. Like, do I, I should call the police or Should something. I look in the yeah. hospitals for them? Right. What happened? Right. <laughs> right? But I think in their generation, it's like, oh, you know, people will come into therapy and they're like, we broke up. And I'm like, oh, what happened? What what did the person say? Oh, they didn't, but they just stopped texting me, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's how you that that's considered just a normal breakup, and I think it's really sad. 
It's, yeah, it's sad and weird. So what are the ages of the therapy clients you have and like how many men versus women? Like, I'm really curious about the conversations you have with them and how much their age group sort of determines their approach. Like, like what kind of thing would say, you know, a 20 something guy, actually, let's start there. Cause I'm curious, like what kinds of things does he say? A 20 something guy. I mean, so you have to consider that the people who come to therapy tend to be more interested in relationship. Right. It's self-selecting right there. And maybe that's too young. Are they, are they 30 something? Is no, that they're easier? coming in. Yeah. They'll come in. Usually a 20 something guy will come in because of something happened at work. And then we end up talking about relationships um, because it's a part of their life. Often a 20 something, if he does come in for a relationship, it's because of a breakup and he's really upset about a breakup. So, you know, I, I think there's this stereotype that, that guys aren't affected the same way as women are, and they absolutely are. But the difference is women are allowed to talk about it and men aren't. So men come to therapy to talk about it because uh, women do too, of course, but women will come to therapy, but also several of their friends know how they feel about the breakup. Men come in and literally not one of their friends knows other than, yeah, we broke up. And like, that's been the conversation. And, you know, the guys don't know how to kind of offer support to them. They feel really isolated. They feel like it's more embarrassing for a guy to have been broken up with that they are humiliated by that. We're having a lot of discussions, again, online, but actually everywhere, sort of about the sexual revolution. There's a kind of relitigating of it going on in a lot of, you know, public conversational spaces. You know, this idea that sort of millennial women, especially younger millennial women, sort of were not told about their fertility, which I think is really, really interesting because I, that was certainly not my experience. But like, for instance, I do a podcast with uh, Sarah Hader. I have another podcast and she's like 30, 31 or so. And she talks all the time about how like in health class, they were never told that like there's a biological clock or like that wasn't in anything that they were consuming almost because it had been sort of framed as unfeminist or like sexist or somehow misogynist to tell women the truth about their fertility. Have you noticed that? Yes, that's exactly right. That people don't want to acknowledge it because it sounds like it's sexist. And and when in fact it's purely biological. There's <laughs> right. It's what it's it is. A fact. Yes. Right. And and I think that when you do see things about fertility in the media for for those generations. What they grew up seeing was, look at the celebrity who had a baby at 45, you know, not mentioning that, oh, guess what? They use donor eggs and a surrogate or, you know, or they, they spent $100,000 on fertility treatments and it took them seven years or, you know, whatever. So, so I think that it was always like, I think when I was growing up, it was like, oh, you really want to be thinking about this around age 30, about what's happening with your fertility. And then what happened was it moved to, oh, you don't really need to worry about that till you're 40 or 45, which is just really dangerous for somebody who really wants to have children. Yeah. Yeah. So are you seeing that shift? Like, I mean, are you seeing people 
actually saying, well, maybe I should get married at a younger age, you know, because there was always this, I'm sure you and I have talked about this. There's like this kind of, there was for our cohort, this stigma in partnering up too early because like high achieving people don't do that kind of thing. Are you seeing changes there? What I'm seeing is women are much more aware of their fertility. And so they're freezing their eggs at a much earlier age. So many women who, you know, are somewhere between 30 and 35 are freezing their eggs. I don't think that they're rushing out to, you know, obviously if they're, if they're people who want to find a partner, they're very active in looking for a partner. That is the ideal. That's what they want. But they're also not going to marry somebody in order to have children. So they're freezing their eggs and they're actively looking for the right partner. How do you feel about that? Because I'm hearing that egg freezing doesn't work as well as we were told it might. Yeah, it's it's risky, but so is marrying the wrong person. Yeah. So I don't think that there are great options. I think, you know, people think it's unfeminist to say, oh, you know, I'm I'm in my 30s and I'm panicking. And I understand why people are panicking. Like, why is that unfeminist? There, there is this, you know, sort of just biological fact sitting there. And it really is a huge life difference for someone who really wants kids to find out later that they can't have them or can't have them in the way that they want to have them or, you know, or find out that they're going to do it alone. And that wasn't what they wanted to do, but that's, the best option on the table given their life circumstance. So I completely understand why women are panicked, but I think that the way that it's been portrayed in our culture is like a punchline to a joke. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, these women, they're so desperate. It's like, it's not about desperation. It's about, look, we get one life. This is something that's really important to me in my life. I want to partner and I want to raise children. Those things are important to me. A lot of other things I have control over, like what I do professionally, I have control over that. You know, my friendships, I have more control over that. But I don't have as much control over when and if I'm going to find a partner and when and if I'm going to have a child. Okay, so all these people that I'm seeing online that I'm reacting to, they would say, well, that's because women are asking for too much. You know, you've been sold a bill of goods. And everybody needs to sort of get more in touch with their primal impulses. Is there an argument for partnering with somebody when you're younger because you are less set in your ways and you kind of grow together? Well, first of all, I really, really take issue with this notion that's been out there for decades about there's some reason that if you are career focused, that that's getting in the way of finding a partner. The best way to find a partner is to be out in the world. So, and to be someone who feels, who has meaning, who has purpose, who's whole, right? In whatever, whatever that means for you. So, and I think you're, you're more attractive as a partner, you know, and you may or may not decide to, you know, do that career for the rest of your life, or you might switch careers. But at the time that you're looking to meet someone, when you're out in the world doing something that you care about, that's going to position you best for finding a partner. So a lot of people say, oh, these women, they're so career focused. They don't have time to find a relationship. You could have all the time in the world. That doesn't change the inventory. And I say inventory because it truly is an inventory issue, an inventory of 
the kinds of men that you might want to partner with. That doesn't change that. So no matter how much time you could be sitting around all day long, you know, going on a million dates, doing whatever, people who are working still go on a million dates. They're still on the apps. They're still asking their friends to set them up with people. They're not doing anything differently than someone who doesn't have a career that they're invested in. Okay. So what about people who say, well, men don't like women with big careers. Like they love a kindergarten teacher or, you know, some kind of like sort of non-threatening, nurturing kind of job. I think some men are like that. But I also think that the woman who is not that person who's the, you know, who wants to be kind of the the supporter, the, like the, the supporting cast in a marriage is not going to be happy with that kind of guy. You know, if a guy, so, so I think it's, it's about fit. So it's, it's not about judging men who want that or women who want a guy who wants that. It's about, there are many men who don't want that. And there are many women who don't want that. And those people are looking for each other. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, part of the reason that I've become so like fixated on this is because I have found myself in this sort of conversational sphere, you know, among a lot younger people. I mean, through my other podcast, you know, Sarah's like, you know, like I said, she's about 30. She has a lot of friends and colleagues around that age. And they are like really, really into talking about how having a family and having kids will, you know, is, is you have to do that in order to be like a real adult and to be fulfilled. And in fact, like it will help your career. There's this whole world of like business bro, kind of like entrepreneurial bro influencers who love to, you know, they, they have all these male followers, kind of young guys. And they say, you know, the most important thing you can do is find a wife. And it's just like this bizarre development. Well, so I would say, again, just big stereotype here, so or big generalization here, men do tend to mature when they have a stable relationship. They just, they tend to be more emotionally, they tend to become more emotionally mature. They tend to have more capacity for other perspectives. They tend to be more giving, compassionate, understanding other people's needs, being more self-reflective because they get called on their bullshit more. I mean, everybody in a relationship, you always get called on your bullshit more when you're with a partner because, you know, it's like the difference between when I see an individual come into therapy and they're telling me something that happened with their partner. And then I see the couple come in and I have a whole different view of it, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you, you don't call yourself on your own bullshit, but your partner will, They'll, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is part of it also. So it's not about blame, but it's about responsibility and it's about self-awareness. And I think that people do grow in relationship. So, and you know, all, all genders do, but, but I think men especially do because I think women have more experience growing in relationship than men tend to have because we just have more relationships in our lives. I'm talking about friendships and other kinds of intimate relationships that might not be romantic. Right. And I mean, I think men tend to, again, generalization, but you know, that's what this podcast is for. I think men, men tend to rely on their female partners for emotional sustenance in a way that women don't necessarily rely on male partners. Women have a whole bunch of friends and they have girlfriends. Oh. And so, 
Yeah. Absolutely. When, when women come into, it's so funny because, you know, you asked about, you know, do I see men or women in therapy when, when men come in by themselves, not as part of a couple, they'll usually say to me, I've never told anyone this before. And they literally mean that they have not told a soul. And the thing that they tell me, I'm waiting for some big revelation. It's like something that women talk about at lunch. You know, it's like, it's like something that would not feel that intimate to a woman, but for a guy, and that's not the guy's fault. That's the culture. And for women, they'll come in and they will often say too, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, my best friend. So they've told like one, two, three, however many people, but they feel like, because they haven't told everyone that they really haven't told anyone. And then when I have couples come in, I will see, and if it's a heterosexual couple, and I see all kinds of couples, I will often see that if it's a heterosexual couple, the issue tends to be that the woman in the couple wants the guy to be more emotionally forthcoming and to she feels disconnected. She wants to feel closer to him. She feels like, you know, they're they're not connecting. And so then he'll open up to her in the room, on the couch, right in front of me, and maybe he tears up or starts crying. And inevitably she will look at me kind of like a deer in headlights. Like, I don't know what to do with this. On the one hand, you know, it comes out, I don't feel safe when he doesn't share with me because I feel like we're not connecting. And I don't feel safe when he's crying because that kind of vulnerability in him makes me feel unsafe. So it's not the guy's fault that they haven't gotten the modeling or the experience before they're in these relationships to, you know, to have that kind of emotional intimacy that women are, have the privilege of having just by virtue of, of what the culture allows. And I think it's really important that we think about that because I think that, you know, a lot of times women will say, oh, men, they're, they're not emotionally mature or they, they don't know how to be emotionally intimate. And part of it is us, you know, part of it is women where when they are vulnerable with us, we kind of recoil. Yeah. And you don't think that the whole sort of seventies free to be you and me, Williams doll approach changed anything? Like, do you see differences? Like I, cause I think people were sort of ha- having the idea that like, Oh, if these boys are raised in by feminist moms, they will be more emotionally available. Did that pan out? I do think that if you grow up in a household where vulnerability is modeled and especially where the boys in the house are are able to to kind of be treated in the same way as as the girls in the house. So an example might be, you know, and I see this all the time just as a parent. I used to see this when my son was younger. You know, if we were at the park and a girl fell down and started crying, the parents would say, oh, honey, are you okay? And the boy falls down and starts crying and they say, it's okay. Shake it off. Get up. Yeah. It's, it, it starts so young and we don't even realize that we're doing that. And I think, you know, with my son, it's, we've just, you know, kind of like feelings are like air in our house. I don't mean that we sit there and go, how do you feel about this? He would, he, he would disown me. <laughs> He'll be but, in therapy later. For exactly. That. Got the yeah. therapy fund and the college fund. But, <laughs> but, but it was more like, you know, we could talk about when he's dating, we can talk about the way that a girl might come to her parents and say like, this is what happened with this guy and I'm confused or what should I do? He'll do that with me. 
And I think that's just because he was raised in a way where there wasn't some weird thing about guys can't do that. And I see a lot of times he's the one in relationships who will bring up issues that need to be discussed, like more so than even the girls that he's dating, because they, again, because of the generation that they're in with, you know, sort of everything happens digitally or virtually. He, I think, is is more emotionally open and more emotionally fluent than than even some of the girls. So I do think that the way that we raise boys is really important, but that doesn't inoculate them from the larger culture where I don't, I don't know that he would talk this way sort of out in the world with his guy friends. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your son, Zach. I know he has, um, he's also doing a lot of speaking and writing about therapy and psychology and, you know, kind of Gen Z resilience and that kind of stuff, which is super interesting. But I'm wondering like, how does he feel about the state of dating and about like, male-female relationships and pornography and expectations and, and all of that? Like, is he frustrated or does he just sort of not know anything different? Oh, he's really frustrated. Yeah. He's a relationship person and he finds the lack of communication really baffling, you know, just in terms of just, you know, people like girls who just, you know, when they say, I guess in, in their age group, they call it like, we're in the talking stage. <laughs> like there's a thing called the talking stage. Is that like third base? Do they still have the bases? Like uh, I have for a no idea. He doesn't share <laughs> no, that like, much with me. It's like texting, talking, you know. Well, choking. no, it's hookups. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's no, like I, I know, <laughs> but, but it's, it's like, it's the talking stage and the talking stage is, you know, like we used to say like, oh, we're, we're flirting with each other or we're, we're getting to know each other or, you know, but it's like, it's like the talking stage and then people hook up, but there's no real sense of like, are we pursuing a relationship with each other? How do we talk about what we are to each other? You know, there's just a lot of those conversations or, or those expectations even, that, okay, we've been going on dates. I think we're starting to form a relationship together. That's just not sort of the expectation. It's not explicit, you know, like it used to be sort of like, this is the obvious next step. And I just think, you know, there's so much going on with their phones. And also the, it's very strange. Like my son finds it very strange. He's like, oh my God, like the girls are just posting thirst traps. Like that's all they post. So can you imagine in it, when we were teenagers, I think it was like hard enough just to be a teenager. If you, if all of your friends were posting like, you know, pictures of themselves in bathing suits and like these like very provocative poses and everybody's posting those that's just so bizarre. Like, and publicly, that's what they're putting out there. No, I know. Well, I mean, this is what I wanted to talk with you about. I mean, how destructive is this? Like, are we just being olds and wagging our fingers and thinking that this is the, the end of the world? Like, I, I don't, I mean, it seems horrifying to me and I don't know how anybody survives this, but are we overreacting? Doesn't sound like it, actually. I think what's interesting is that I see these people 10 years later in therapy. So I see people who grew up this way and now they're in their, you know, late twenties and they really want a relationship, but they just grew up in this environment of, 
I need to post pictures of myself all the time. I need to put this curated version of myself online. I'm always seeing what I'm being left out of. I'm always seeing, you know, what parties other people are at or what they're doing that I, you know, that you would never even know about otherwise, or who got to, or these three friends got together, or these two friends got together without me. You just, you wouldn't necessarily know what everybody else is doing. You're not up in everyone's business all the time, but you're never, there's no privacy. You're never off. And the privacy is, is sort of the authenticity like that really never gets out there. You know, you're not really talking about this was really hard or, you know, any sort of vulnerability that's not really out there. Or there's that, that fake vulnerability, which I can't stand. Can you You give an example of that actually? Oh yeah. I mean, you see this all the time on social media where people will say like, I've never told anyone this, but I'm sharing it with all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and, and it's like, I'm being so vulnerable. And people will be like, oh my gosh, you're so brave, queen. Right. right and right. because you posted something from behind a screen that you curated, that you presented in exactly the way you wanted to present it, and you were doing it so that lots of people would tell you how fabulous you are and how brave you are and see how many likes you get and see how many comments you get and how many hearts you get and how many emojis you get. So that's not vulnerability. I think true vulnerability. And this is what I think, you know, people who grew up in just, this was their only experience. They don't really understand that true vulnerability is when you are face to face alone with another human being and you're showing them the truth of who you are. You're taking off the mask. That is so different from putting out a social media post with some, you know, statement that, you know, everyone's going to like about you because, you know, you acknowledge that you're human. If you say something, if you're face to face with someone that you care about where the stakes are high, it doesn't really matter about what you put on social media because you know that enough people are going to like it. So maybe somebody doesn't like it, but whatever. If there's someone where the stakes are high because you care about this relationship and this person and how they feel about you, and then you open up to them, that is vulnerability. And that's what people don't have practice doing. Let me show you who I am. Let me understand more about who you are. Let's take off our masks. Let's take off this curation that we're, you know, we have on Snapchat and on Instagram or, you know, wherever we are. Can they even get to that? Are these kids, quote unquote, dating? Because the other thing we hear all the time is that nobody's having sex, nobody's actually having relationships. Is that true? Uh, They're having sex, not necessarily in the way that they want to. Hookups are rampant. They do have relationships. And I think that what at least I see among my son's cohort is that it tends to be people who did the whole like confusing, non-committal, casual thing and finally came to a place of, I really don't like this. And so they either just didn't date because there was nobody that was on the same page as them, or they found someone that wanted what they wanted. And so there are those relationships and it's really beautiful. You know, like I'm thinking of some of my son's friends who are dating and in relationships and a a couple that just had their six month anniversary and another couple who, you know, has been dating for a year. So they're there, but it, it took a lot of 
uh, self-awareness to say, you know what, just because everybody else is dating in this way, it doesn't make me cool to kind of go along with what the culture is telling me that is cool. Like I'm not supposed to care. That is somehow feminist to be like, oh, I don't really care. And I can be noncommittal and I can be the cool girl who doesn't really get too attached. That turns out not to be so cool. Right. And so, yeah. And again, back to this kind of like trad sphere, there's a lot of like women have tamped down their, their personalities or their needs. Like we, we, we were told that women are the same as men. Women can enjoy hookups the same as men. They don't need to have like an emotional connection, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like people are waking up to the fact that that's not true and then feeling like they're like in on some big secret when this has always been the case pretty much. Well, I, I would I would push back on that because I, I feel like men also, many men, really want relationships too. Yeah. And so they're told to be the cool guy, you have to not care. You have to not get too attached. You know, like, what are you, a pussy? You, you really like her? You know, like that stuff still exists. So it's, you know, the, the, you know, I think that we think that the culture has changed so much, but in reality, it hasn't, that there's still those cultural expectations that for guys, it's like, oh, look, you really care. Right. And you're being, you're being like, you know, you're being like whipped by her. Right. And for women, it's like, oh, you know, like you're not feminist if somehow you feel too attached to, you know, wanting a relationship. If you catch feelings. Yes, that's what they call it. Catching feelings like it's a disease. Yes. Yeah. Well, when the girls do those thirst traps, what are they after? I don't have a girl, so... (laughs) Well, okay, but you're an observer. I mean, they they come into your office, Yes, I can tell you what women in therapy will say. You know, that... So many times, I mean, literally I have had people like I will, I, this is, I would open the door to the waiting room and people are taking selfies, like provocative selfies. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, really? So you're coming in here to be, you know, the uncurated version of yourself and you're curating these photos out in the waiting room. And the minute they leave, you know, they're probably taking more. Oh so God. I just think that's, it's almost like, are you trying to sort of document your life, you know, a version of life, you know, kind of a fantasy version of your life. But really what I think it's about ultimately is I want to fit in. I want people to, to see me. I don't want to be invisible, you know, and the only way that you can be not in, like, if you aren't posting those things, you really are invisible. Like no one's paying attention to you because people are not really interacting in real life. So the only way that they're really interacting is online. And people care about how many followers they have. You know, it's like, how do you tell if someone's popular? Do they have 2,000 followers or 500 followers? Which is really funny because can you imagine, you don't have 500 friends, which that makes you look like a loser 500. But nobody even has 500 friends. You want to have about 2,000 followers if you're just like the average high school, college person. Okay, these are high school. Okay, so they have 2,000 followers and these are just like random people all over the place, like adults, other teenagers. There are other teenagers at other schools. There are, you know, whoever. Yeah. 
I mean, I would say, I would say sort of the, the popular people tend to have around like between one and 2000, sometimes more than 2000. And if you're not that popular, you have about 500. Okay. So like, but the super sexy kind of thirst traps, are they, are, are the girls and, you know, young women, are they trying to attract men or are they competing with other women? Oh, I think both. Definitely, definitely both. But I don't think that it's, it's something that they think about. I don't think they're saying to themselves, this is why I'm doing it. I think they're saying, I feel empowered. This is empowering to me, right? So like, I feel really sexy. I feel really pretty. I feel really empowered. And then they get that feedback of gorge, beautiful, you know, like everyone's telling them. And it's all about just like how they look in a, in a picture. But I, I feel like, well, what happens to the rest of them? Where are they getting the feedback of, wow, you're so funny, you're so smart, you're so interesting, you're, so, you're such a great friend? They're not getting that kind of feedback because they're not posting images of that. They're just posting images of, you know, how beautiful, how sexy do I look? Oh, my gosh. And is this like everybody slash most people? Like there's r- really not an opportunity for them to be funny. Like, I guess they could make a TikTok video that's funny or a YouTube that was not super sexual. Sure. Sure. But in terms of just the, the, but even when they're being funny in a TikTok or YouTube, they're spending a lot of time putting on makeup and making sure that they look a certain way, or, you know, they do those posts of, Oh, I just got out of bed. (laughs) Look at me. And of course, they took like 20 photos just to get the perfect, I don't look good photo. Right, right. Oh, God. So how do you walk people back from this? So then, you know, they, they've grown up with this. They wind up in your office. Like, what kinds of conversations are you having with, with women, say, about like how they can unpeel their minds from this and start to live and think in a different way? Well, I think what's great is that when people come to therapy, again, of any gender, I feel like they're really here because they're saying something isn't working. So it's it's the people who aren't coming to therapy that I, I worry more about. And I don't think everybody needs to go to therapy. I'm not one of these people who's like, therapy is for everybody. I don't agree with that. But I do think that the people who are realizing that this is causing a problem are the people who are talking about it's a problem. And the people who don't realize it's a problem are, are, are the people who maybe should be coming to talk to somebody about why it's problematic. And I think what people are coming in to say is, this is really exhausting. I feel very lonely. I have all of these people who will, you know, comment and like, or I can, you know, text with, or I can snap with, or I can, whatever they want to do with, I can go on a million dates if I want, but they feel lonely. They want richer, fuller relationships, whether that's friendships, whether that's romantic relationships, they want more in real life. This is, you know, this is, this is a real relationship. We, we, we aren't existing by sending pictures to each other or just texting back and forth. And they don't have a lot of that in their lives. And they're starting to really realize that it feels lonely. You can be surrounded by, you know, people online, but it, even people you know too. I don't mean strangers, like actual people that you know, and still feel incredibly lonely. And by the way, going back to those numbers for a second, when you think about 
how many people you can actually know well and know you well, it's a handful. You know, it's, it's, it's not 500. So the idea, it's kind of ludicrous to think that, you know, it's some measure of your worth that 500 people quote, like you or follow you or, or 1500 do or 2,500 do. These people don't know you at all. They have no idea who you are. They like a photo that you posted. Is there an age cutoff here? Like, do you see this mostly in people under say 35? Like when did this really become an acute phenomenon? Well, I should say that I think it's all over the culture. So so if you look at people who come in because they are now 45 or 50 and just got divorced or they're widowed and they did not grow up with this and now they're in this weird, unreal landscape that they just have no idea how to navigate, it really affects them too because, you know, it's like, all of a sudden they they're they're just flummoxed by sort of what the expectations are and what people are expecting in terms of you know how are we going to interact how are we going to meet are we going to meet you know why are people sending me pictures and why why aren't we just getting to know each other so i think there's a there's a trickle up effect that that it's it's not like oh because you grew up a different way and then suddenly you find yourself not being partnered and looking for a partner that you're going to get to have the same experience that you had earlier. You're now stuck in this new culture and it's, it's just, it turns your world upside down. Yeah. You are stuck in the new culture, but you still have a better chance of finding somebody who (laughs) did not grow up in that culture. Like you can kind of commiserate, like you do have to kind of navigate it. But I mean, I feel so lucky to be, the age that I am. I mean, I don't like getting older, but I just feel like, oh my God, to have missed all of that. Yes. And to not have that be part of my hard wiring is like a tremendous gift, you know? Yes. Although I will say that I think more so what I'm hearing is that men are really engaging with this new culture, (laughs) which is really frustrating to women. And so what happens is a recent example is over the holidays, somebody met someone at a party and they really hit it off. And the guy asked for her phone number, seemed like a very normal interaction. And the guy was texting with her for like 10 days, never asked her out. And it was so strange. That was the first half of my conversation with author, psychotherapist, podcast host, all around insightful, interesting relationship expert, Lori Gottlieb. We get into some really juicy stuff in the second half, including why so many women in their 30s and even 20s are willing to date much older men, why you should date people who are widowed, and why you should hire a matchmaker. To hear it, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com or just go to Substack and look for The Unspeakable with Megan Dom. In the meantime, I will tell you that Laurie is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. That is currently being adapted as a television series. You can learn more about her at lauriegottlieb.com. You can find her on Instagram, Twitter, all the regular places. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. 